If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a very moving story she told me about these two rings that she was given by her parents and she says she rolled them under the floorboards in the house and and that was the moment at which she stopped thinking about them. That was Bart Van S on a Jewish girl's separation from her parents in the Second World War. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Bart Van Ness is a professor of English at the University of Oxford, whose previous books have tended to focus on early modern literature. However, his most recent book, The Cutout Girl, is of a very different kind. Part biography, part family history, it tells the story of Lean, a young Jewish girl who survived the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands thanks to being taken in by the Van Es family, Bart's grandparents. Many decades later, however, Lean fell out with the Van Esses, and Bart decided he needed to find out why. I paid a visit to Bart in Oxford a little while back, to find out more about his extraordinary book, which recently won the prestigious Costa Book of the Year Award. I began by asking him when he first became aware of Lean's story. Well, I'd always been aware from being a young child of Lean having been saved by my grandparents, and my grandparents saved a, a number of Jewish children during the war. But that was really as far as it went. It was pretty much just a name to me and that broad sort of knowledge of a resistance past. My grandparents didn't really want to talk about it. They were not people for these grand stories and then there was also once I was a teenager that added complication of this break with lean um which again just was very vague to me that that 
happened. I remember my mother crying and sort of talk about lean, but I didn't really know who she was at that point. So it was something quite distant uh, without any detail, but I was aware of it. And then what was it that prompted you to get in touch with her and, and try and piece out her story? It's quite difficult to absolutely pinpoint that. I think one element was the death of my eldest uncle, Case, who died in November 2014. And even though I didn't even know him very well, I think something sort of registered that he was the first of that generation to pass away and that other people were going to pass away and then the story would be lost. Combined with, I suppose, a sense of the relevance of that history again, you know, just anti-Semitism was more prominent to me than it had been 15 years or 10 years earlier. It suddenly seemed that that history wasn't as far past. Um, so I think that sort of gelled together those two things. And I kind of thought, you know, I've, I'd always had a bit of a sense that because I was the academic in the family that I ought to do something to record this. Um, but then I kind of thought, no, I really should. And how did Lean feel at first about the idea of you talking to about this history and potentially writing about it? Well, my mother, who'd kept in touch with Lean, uh, first of all said, Lean absolutely won't want to do this. And I sort of had to insist and say, no, you should. I, I really want to. And then she was very kind and said, well, I'll send her an email. I, I then got an email back uh, after I got her email address. And she said, well, I'll meet you for a cup of coffee, but the Vanessas are not important to me anymore. Um, you know, and when I first met her, she said, I don't think I've really got a story. And she was quite cautious about the whole thing. It was, she should kind of interviewed me. So she definitely didn't set out with the idea that we would end up writing a book. But then on the other hand, she very quickly, once we met, we just immediately had this fantastic connection. And she said, yep, you know, I've got faith in this. Um, why don't we get on and do it? So it was then very intense um, from December 2014 that we first met. And then we had this very, very sustained period of interviewing and my visiting things like archives in, in January 2015, which is really the core of the book. And I wonder if you could take the story back, tell us a little bit about Lean's very early life and how she first ended up making a connection with your family. Yeah, so Lean was, I think, barely conscious of being Jewish at all as a child. She was born in 1933 in uh, The Hague, sort of the seat of government in the Netherlands extended Jewish family, but not one that was particularly observant. So Netherlands was invaded in May 1940. At the beginning, it really felt like nothing much was going to change. Very, very gradually, these anti-Jewish measures ramped up. First of all, it's just registration of your Jewish identity, exclusion from working in the civil service, a ban on having radios. Um, and it then in 41, the establishment of specific Jewish schools meant that she was much more removed, the introduction of the Jewish star. So it became clear by 1942. So that basically the plan for the Holocaust was orchestrated by Himmler kind of over the winter of 41 to 42. That, uh, that was when, when the kind of core plan and, and the Netherlands was seen as an early, easy target. And, and deportations to Poland started happening from the uh, Netherlands in January 1942. And by July, very large numbers of people who'd, who'd been registered were getting these call-up papers to be sent to Poland. They didn't know where, though rumours were starting to circulate. And Lean's parents were aware that they were going to get called up. 
and they just they they were aware also that it was easier to hide children because they didn't have identity papers. Uh, so they made this absolutely terrifying and terrible choice that they they would give lean up to the resistance. So she was then collected at the door in August 1942 by a member of the resistance and taken to a completely different city, given a new identity, uh, and became effectively that well the niece is how it was presented of my my grandfather and grandmother. So the Netherlands at this point was under German occupation, but to what extent did people of the Netherlands and even the administrators of the Netherlands either help with this deportations and anti-Jewish measures or conversely try and resist them? Yeah, the Netherlands was under occupation, but the Dutch state was more or less left exactly as was. I mean, you had Seisch Inquart, who was the, the head of state, effectively. He was German, but... The whole Dutch civil service remained, the Dutch police remained, the school system was unchanged, and the Dutch were really utterly compliant, I think. There were there was there was a certain amount of resistance from things like trade unions early on. There was a general strike called around those first deportations of Jews, which was actually quite a remarkable thing. The, the, the Dutch were unique in having that general strike, but it was dealt with incredibly brutally. So just shootings of all the people on the pickets, which turned out to be very effective because it was clear that if you resisted, you would immediately be shot. There were no quarter would be given. So, you know, morally, it seemed it was a particularly difficult choice to be part of the resistance because you could just stay as part of a prosperous, still entirely functioning state that wasn't going to bother you, or you could be shot or put into a concentration camp. So essentially, the, the Dutch state was really very compliant um, so it was Dutch police who were rounding up Jews. It was Dutch railway companies that were transporting Jews from the Dutch holding pen of Vesterbork. And particular measures, very shocking measures, were brought in, like a, a bounty system on the head of Jews who were brought in. You know, policemen or even kind of commercial operators were being paid seven guilders and 50 cents for every Jew that they delivered. And there was really relatively little resistance at that stage. Resistance came a lot more in 43, but in, in 42, when Lean went to my grandparents, it, it was, it was, you know, not, not a very big part of the Dutch response. I mean, the things that, which are really quite shocking is that Dutch contractor companies, you know, big firms were competing for contracts to build the Atlantic Wall, uh, which was the defence system against British invasion. It really was quite a deep level of embracing almost of, of the invasion you know, done as well. The Germans were effectively presenting the Dutch as we're, you're a fellow people apart from the Jews. This is quite interesting because the Netherlands has a reputation of being a very tolerant country and certainly didn't have the history of anti-Semitism that some other countries in Europe did. But yet the Jews in the Netherlands actually fared a lot worse than, say, in some other countries such as France, for example. What do you think was different about the Netherlands in this regard? Yeah, that's right. It absolutely didn't have a history of anti-Semitism. I mean, one of the things I really confront in my book is this the amazing thing that during the time of the Dutch Republic, historians have been unable to find really a single instance of anti-Semitism. It's really astonishing. Jews in the Netherlands had, you know, rights of citizenship, the right to bear arms. They were part of things like kind of first bundles presented to the king. There would be Hebrew verses as part of that. Um, so that, you know, it was a very attractive place to be Jewish in the you know, 16th and 17th century and, uh, and afterwards. So why then 
is the survival rate, which is you know twice as bad in the Netherlands as anywhere else in Western Europe. Um, there are some just physical factors, the flatness of the Netherlands, the fact that the borders are, you know, very exposed. It's not, you know, if you have a forested border, it's easier for people to slip out. There was there was nowhere to go out of the Netherlands and there's kind of basically nowhere to hide. It's a very urban population. It also had an extremely efficient identity card system already. So the, the efficiency of the Dutch state would would always have made pursuit of any group within the society easier. But then I think there are also, you know, very deep cultural things that are about a culture of tolerance that was quite limited in its level of engagement with other people. So there's this thing in Dutch society that was called pillarization, where there was kind of absolute equality under the law, but a kind of culture of not really mingling too much and you still have this a bit in the Netherlands. You have Protestant trade unions and Catholic trade unions, Protestant schools uh, and Catholic schools. And, you know, this went at quite a deep social level. So Lean's parents, for example, though they were not very consciously Jewish, were members of a Jewish sports club. And that sort of thing is quite interesting. That And that was sort of not seen as a problem in the Netherlands, really. But actually it meant that people didn't identify with each other at a very deep level. And I think that made it much easier for people to to get alienated from a, a group in society. But conversely, there obviously were people who very bravely took in took in Jewish children, like, of course, your grandparents. So what do you think motivated these people to behave in a very different manner? Well, my analysis is that it, it mattered a lot that they were part of an organisation that wasn't um, sectarian in the way that it was set up. So they, they were part of a political party, um, which was... A, precursor to the Dutch Labour Party. Uh, so they knew Jewish people through that political party. They were also connected to another important network, which was the network of GPs. Um, so the GPs was in the medical world, there were quite a lot of Jewish people. Um, so that meant that they had people who could call on them, who could trust them early on. And I think they also, because of that, had this wider vision of society you know they, they were very idealistic about what they could achieve as socialists this sort of notion that you know if they gave people education and so on they could build a better state that i think made them willing to fight for things beyond just their own family and if i look at the people who became part of the resistance they tended to be part of those either sort of more mixed networks like the universities which were very active student organisations were active, trade unions were active, or, or the other group that ended up being active, though a little later, were the churches. Uh, so Catholic churches, a very good record. Protestant church for a while didn't, but eventually also did. And they, again, had an ideal higher than themselves, I suppose. And how much risk did your grandparents and other people like them take in sheltering Jewish children? I think a really profound risk, um, also because... There was no sense that this was the war and it would be over at a certain point. You know, I think this this felt like a permanent state. If you look at the collaborators, conversely, they just sort of saw this as the the new reality. It wasn't like, oh, we know that we've got to survive until 45. You, know, you would be taking in Lean or the other children they hid later on uh, with a sense of this, this is our lives from now on. Um, and, you know, the cases that I've looked at Generally, people who were caught sheltering Jews were sent to 
Furcht, which is the was the SS concentration camp within the Netherlands, where you were certainly quite likely to die. Um, it wasn't a death camp, but there were a lot of random executions carried out there. People died in cells through lack of oxygen. My grandfather was sent to Furcht after a raid on the house, and you know he was beaten. He always had back problems from that. So you know. Yeah, it was hugely risky and, you know, wasn't even clear that the survival that he had was, was you know, inevitable. I, I suspect if the occupation continued, eventually those in Wurt would just have been liquidated. So, you know, I think you'd have reason to be extremely fearful. And then how difficult was it to keep a child like Lean hidden all those years? Well, initially hiding Lean in Dordrecht, which was the town that my grandparents lived in, would have been relatively easy because children didn't have identity cards. And so the story they came up with was that uh, one of my grandmother's sisters had been killed in the bombing of Rotterdam and that Lean was a surviving daughter of that bombing. So she was a niece. That's how they announced her to everyone. And she just went to school openly. Um, So in this poetry book that Lean kept, there are poems from my aunts and uncles addressing her as their cousin. So that was sort of easy. I suppose, you know, how do people look Jewish? I think, relatively speaking, she didn't look that Jewish. So it seemed maybe relatively easy. But then, of course, there were these very active Jew hunters as they build themselves in Dordrecht. And they were hunting down people. So actually, it it wasn't that easy because people had this incentive to inform on their neighbours and the net was closing around Lean. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. How easy or difficult was it for Lean to be assimilated within your grandparents' family and for her to feel like she fitted in? I think it, it was easy on one level, but then came at a very profound psychological cost. Um... So when she went away from her parents' house and came to my grandparents, she was initially told by her mother and father that she was going on a little holiday um, and, and she'd go and stay somewhere else because, of course, if you tell a child, you know, we're leaving you, there would be incredible tears. She'd refuse to go. So there was a sort of necessary lie. So she went to this new family. They, they were a lovely family. Uh, and she very quickly settled with them and, and found them a fun group to be with then it started to dawn on her what was happening when when she was told that she couldn't write for her father's birthday which was in november 42 that sense fixed itself on her now that this was something permanent um she kind of cried a lot and so she assimilated with the family but i think she did that by sort of psychologically cutting off quite a big part of herself she said she just couldn't think of her parents anymore she couldn't visualize them um, she just, there's a very moving story. She told me about these two rings that she was given by her parents. And she says she rolled them under the floorboards in the house. And, and that was the moment at which she stopped thinking about them. And it wasn't until very much later that that sort of repressed memory came back. But she couldn't in the end stay with your family for the entire war, could she? So what happened that meant she had to then move on? Yeah, so in, we're not absolutely sure of the date, but probably around... April 43, there was a knock on the door uh, and Lean went to answer it. There were two policemen at the door. As soon as Lean opened the door, they charged in past her, which was incredibly fortunate for her because there are other cases where the children were picked up straight away. My grandmother ran over to her and said, right, now you go to Mrs. Brown as she got a new foster family instantly. And then she was passed into a network of people. The house was clearly no longer safe. So from that date in 43, probably kind of April, until the end of the war, Lean was passed from family to family. Um, we think a total of eight different houses that she stayed in over that period. And those were very different hiding circumstances in each case. And generally the impression you get from the book is that she was treated much less well by the, the other people who looked after her certainly in general, than, than your grandparents? Yes, I mean, it, it varied. I think it, it clearly the circumstances were much worse anyway. Um, so she hid for a while with the Hiramar family in Dordrecht, and it was the Hiramars who first collected her. It was Mrs. Hiramar collected her from The Hague. I mean, they were really wonderful people, but they had a lot of people hiding in their house, so Lena had to be absolutely silent, uh, stay in one room, you know, there was just an intense sense of terror around that house. Mr. Hiramo was also arrested. So, you know, this this was properly being in hiding in the sort of Anne Frank style. Eventually, she was moved out of Dordrecht uh, to a sort of farm-like building outside uh, Rotterdam, a place called Eiselmonde. I think that was also a very nice family, actually, as far as 
I can reconstruct it from the materials. But uh, Lean by that stage had also been, I think, sort of anaesthetized almost by this process of continual movement, this total uncertainty. She just wasn't connecting to people. So Lean remembers very little about that family. And again, then there was a police raid on that house. She ended up in a resistance hideout and then eventually got brought very strangely to my, my mother's home village. Um, and yet there, the family she was with did not work out well. Clearly, Lean survived the war, along with quite, I think, even several thousand uh, Dutch children in hiding. What then happened to these people when so many of their parents and families would have sadly been killed? Yeah, so there were around 4,000 children in the Netherlands who were saved in circumstances separated from their parents and family. And that was the research that I did for the sort of last part of the book, really, was was looking at the organisations that were set up uh, in the Netherlands. The Netherlands suffered more under the German occupation than any other Western country, because um, they were the, really the last block to be liberated. And they, they sort of had that hunger winter. So the Dutch state was really kind of utterly destroyed in that last part of the war. So one of the things that's quite remarkable in a way is that the, the war ended in May 1945, but it wasn't until November 45 that Lean was actually located by the state, effectively, by Mrs. Hirama was then sort of working as part of an organisation that was about kind of recovering these children. Yeah, then it's a very complicated story because there were these these very large numbers of Jewish children. People didn't know uh, necessarily where they all were and they certainly didn't know whether they had surviving relatives or not. Something called the OPK was set up, which was stands for Orlogsplechkinder, the, the Dutch, which basically means war orphans. And the big problem with that organisation was it was actually set up with the leadership of someone called Gesine van der Molen, who had been a very important Calvinist resistance leader who had saved 80 Jewish children and so seemed a kind of natural choice by the Dutch government to head up that commission. But being as this very strong Calvinist, Hesina van der Molen effectively felt that those children had been saved for Christ. And already before the end of the war, she sent messages to the members of her resistance network that they should not give up their children, even if the parents were to come. Uh, she said, they've, they've given those children up and they are now your children, which is incredibly shocking. And so... Gesine van der Molen, as the head of the OPK, which was staffed majoritarily by non-Jews, had a board with a non-Jewish majority, set up this policy that she called the child-centred policy, where they they would assess the interests of the child, which were very much kind of a Christian model of what interest was. So that was set up as a sort of process to look at these cases of surviving children. And again, they had to be identified. There There was quite a significant bureaucracy around all this. It was well documented. But what then happened was that a Jewish organization was set up to kind of combat the OPK. So that Jewish organization, the Hezrath al Haim, I think it's called, was for the help of the child. It was set up with funding from the American Joint Distribution Committee of, of American Jews. It also started carrying out research, hiring social workers um, and private investigators and all sorts of things. So there was effectively a war between these two organizations where they were kind of campaigning, and, and Lean has documentation from both those sides. So yeah, basically this took about three or four years for that group of Jewish war ch- 
children to find some kind of permanent settlement. In the end, the Jewish organization kind of won out and they then very much had a policy that Jew, Jewish children should return to a Jewish environment. They were, you know, of course, profoundly aware of the sort of utter destruction of Jewish culture in the Netherlands. So in a way for them, this figure, Abraham de Jong, who was the head of that organization, no relation, though it's the same name as Lean had, he really wanted to save Jewish culture. And sometimes he was quite willing to have Jewish children taken away from very happy foster families and would rather have them in Jewish orphanages or would rather have them uh, being moved to Israel than that they should stay in a Christian environment. Um, so the children were really kind of the victims of that battle between those two interest groups. And Lean herself, her parents had died during the war and she ended up back with your grandparents' family. But then in the long run, that kind of relationship soured a little. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that happened. Yeah, I think that's the the one answer where I do think people should should read the book because it, mm. it it's not... If you give one reason why it happened, it, it just ends up being so reductive. Lean desperately wants to go back to the Van Ness family uh, when she was eventually tracked down in November '45. She had really suffered some absolutely terrible things in the last bit of the war. So she came back a very different child from the one who'd come to my grandparents in August 1942. And, you know, I think partly you have to say, you know, she had a, she had a good childhood with them. Um, she was you know, the, the sister of my father and, uh, you know, they, they gave up a huge amount, you know, immediately took her in and, and they made no distinction between her and the other children. But Lean was different. You know, I think she was traumatised. I mean, the report that Lehezrath al Haim writes on her says, you know, there's a noticeable break in her emotional development. So I think one element of why it ultimately didn't work out was that Lean was a damaged person and that my grandparents had no understanding for that kind of damage and, and how you could possibly deal with a child who's undergone what she has. But then there are other very big factors, certainly mistakes that my grandparents made, um, a kind of wider question of how people deal with trauma. Lean had a suicide attempt that, that was very upsetting to my grandmother, who sort of felt very angry about that. So it was lots of things combining. And it, it, the break didn't happen until the 1980s. How difficult was it for you to write these parts of the book where you're actually potentially having to discover or write things that are difficult for you about your own family? Yeah, very difficult. Um, it was difficult simply at that emotional level because the book is written as a kind of novel. So the way you kind of write a novel is that you empathise with the character you're writing about. Um, and that's a quite a strange experience if you're a middle-aged man empathising with the experience of a little girl. And there are these very harrowing documents that you have to look at, you know, the letter that leans parents sent to my grandparents, for example. You know, I just still cannot read that without getting a lump in my throat. And then there was, yeah, also the difficulty of how you, you know, avoid simplistic judgments on people who are dealing with very difficult circumstances. And I, I really had understandable concerns from people around me that, you know, there would end up being a feeling that, you know, my grandparents came badly out of the book, that they had, there was some kind of revelation at the heart of it. And I didn't want it to, to work like that. But on the other hand, I wanted to be totally honest about what happened. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was very pressured. Um, there, were, there were a lot of sleepless nights over it, I, I have to admit. 
And it seems like it took Lean perhaps half a century to really come to terms with what happened to her during the war. From your research, is that actually quite a common theme or was she unusual in that regard? Very much the common theme that there was this conference that was set up by the Jewish Social Work Organization in 1992. Um, that was on the 50th anniversary of Anne Frank's going into hiding in August 19. So she, she went into hiding like Lean did in August 1942. The conference was in 92. And that brought together the 600 child hideaways who were still living in the Netherlands then. Uh, it was really an astonishing thing to have organized. They, they hired a conference venue. All of the hideaways sort of stayed overnight for a couple of days. It was an incredibly well set up thing. They had a newspaper that was printed every day. They had people bring pictures and pin boards. And Lean found that an incredibly transformative experience. She suddenly met all these other people and they almost all had exactly the same thing, that they'd never been able to talk about it, that they had a sort of version of survivor's guilt. The, the book is called The Cut-Out Girl, and that sense of being cut out, of having just been pasted somewhere else, was really the absolutely shared story that they all had. Um, and the ability then to suddenly share that story with contemporaries, with people who, who, who had the same thing, that is just so important. That's really one of the things I learned from the book psychologically. You know, I think I was more aware of the sort of general history, but I hadn't really thought about how important it is for your self-confidence, for your identity to actually be able to share your story with people. And do you think as a country, the Netherlands has yet come to terms with its wartime experience? Well, I've been really impressed and grateful for the response the book has had in the Netherlands. Uh, it, it's been taken very seriously there, right from the moment it came out. Came out simultaneously in uh, in Dutch translation and British translation. And you know, Lean and I were on the launch day in a big TV studio. The book sold out within 24 hours in the Netherlands. So, the, lots of people have said, you know, they feel the country's ready for this kind of thing uh, that there had been for a long time. This kind of myth of national resistance, and that's being confronted now. Uh, so I think the book is one with a number of books actually that have really confronted that story. And, and yeah, I think mostly people are able to face that now, maybe partly because they are now no longer the, the generation that, you know, directly is morally responsible for what happened. So I think that's very important. Uh, you know, it's very important for now as well, where, where there's in the Netherlands, there's a significant far right movement. There are, some very intolerant things being said and uh, you know the country should not be smug about how it coped with dictatorship last time. Having researched this story how do you now look back on your family's role in the war and what they did to help Lean? Well I'm probably even more proud of them than I was at, at the beginning. I think it really was very few people who were willing to take the risk that they did who, who absolutely put their lives on the line and, and the lives of their children on the line as well. I mean, that just takes such a level of courage. So, and I very much more understand also how they came into that position. What I don't have their direct account of it, but from the research I've done, I've got to understand much more how resistance networks develop. So I feel like, yeah, I feel I have a really nuanced sense of the cost for them, the psychological cost for them, their motivation. You know, and ultimately they're just astonishingly high moral standards for, for having pushed this through. And has the book been 
both yourself and for Lean, a kind of cathartic process? That's an interesting question. Um, I think that to start with Lean, not so much. I, I think that Lean was ready to cooperate with this book because she was already psychologically in balance. And, and the book tells the story of her arrival at that level of balance. So by the time that I met her in um, December 2014, she was somebody very much at peace who, who, who was able to say what happened in the war, speak about it more or less without emotion. So it's for her a lovely confirmation. She can really celebrate the book, but it's not like this solves things. I think maybe for me in a way too, I mean, it's cathartic now in the sense that the, the writing of the book was, was very emotionally hectic for me and it's great that actually the reception of it's been really positive and, and and that people see it in the round but I didn't you know before I wrote the book I wasn't like overcome with a sense of guilt or anxiety around it so I think the fact that Lean and I are actually both very comfortable with the book is is hopefully there in in its quite balanced structure. And then the book has very recently won the Costa Book Prize which is obviously an incredible achievement what do you think that means for the book now going forward? Yeah, it has pretty much meant everything for the book. Uh, it's it's amazing how transformative those prizes are. I mean, it had really had very little coverage. I mean, it had a, a bit of coverage from the BBC, to be uh, generous to you guys, uh, but it didn't get reviewed in the newspapers very much at all. And now, yeah, it's being much more widely shared. And, you know, I'm really happy about that, partly because I think it is genuinely an important story, course you if you write something like this you put a lot of effort into it uh so it's nice if that effort gets rewarded but i you know really appreciate the chance to speak at speak to venues like this and say look actually this stuff still really matters it's not dead history it you know in a world where we've got serious problem with fake news with people being more and more skeptical about democracy and a sort of saying oh, you know, it doesn't make much difference whether you live under a dictatorship or our useless government. And, you know, I think those things are, are incredibly dangerous. And, and I think there's a sort of way in which Western society is sort of sleepwalking into uh, not caring about its its values. Yeah, there's an interesting bit in the book where you talk about whether we need another book on the war. I think it's yeah. Lee who says there's a lot of love songs, but no one minds another one. And yeah, I mean, I definitely, I mean, my uncle, who I stayed with for the writing of the book, fairly early on, this isn't in the book, it was in a draft, but he, he kind of built almost this wall of books on the war, uh, which he presented me with and said, you know, what makes you think you can add something to this? Uh, and that was, you know, one of the many anxieties around the book. You know, uh, there are a lot of Holocaust survival stories and they're all individually important, but, you know, is this adding anything? I think it is different. Um, it's different because it is about the consequences of survival as much as it's about the getting to 45 um which i think has been a dominant paradigm and it's also a lot about what dutch society is like now so part of the book is just me traveling around the country as it is now and sort of you know confronting things like the marginalization of muslim communities in the netherlands uh the ways in which the modernity of the netherlands seems to hide its history so so yeah i think it is a book about now That was Bart Van Ness, The Cutout Girl, A Story of War and Family, Lost and Found, is out now in the UK and the US, published by Penguin. And that is about all for today, but please do listen in on Thursday 
when Alan Johnson will be exploring the history of schools. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.